Coming up on The Exam Room. You hear numbers like half of all cases, if not more, are preventable. Where in the world are we going wrong? Because we're talking about 2 million cases every single year. If you take smoking out of the picture, the percentage that's preventable is even higher. People will say, well, you know, smoking accounts for lung cancer, bladder cancer, a lot of things. And if people take care of that, then your big risk factor now is diet. Get your diet together, cancer rates plummet. So what are the big foods that are really known to fight cancer in a major way? So think about berries. Think about vegetables and colorful fruits. Think about sweet potatoes or carrots. That's the, the beta carotene. Antioxidants, whether it's the orange beta carotene, the red lycopene, the purple anthocyanins. These pigments aren't there just to make them look nice. These pigments are there to signal your eye that this is an antioxidant that you ought to be eating. The antioxidants knock out the free radicals that are going to damage your DNA. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Boise, Idaho, Key Biscayne, Florida, and Liverpool, England. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 48 of season 6, number 444 overall. And this one is all about learning five foods and nutrients and tips that can help keep you cancer-free. Keep you cancer-free at a time when this year alone, 2 million people will be diagnosed with that wretched disease. Now... According to estimates, here's some really good news. According to estimates, about half of those cases are completely preventable. And we can break that down even further between men and women thanks to a widely publicized study from 2015 in the journal JAMA Oncology. And what that particular research found was that for women, 41% of cancer cases are potentially preventable. But then when it came to cancer deaths, almost 60% were potentially preventable. That is enormous. But for men, the news is even better. Way more. 63% of cases and nearly 70% of deaths were preventable. Out of 2 million, those are extremely large numbers. So the question then is, how can you make sure that you are doing everything you can do to remain cancer-free? Well, my friend, I invite you to join us now under the learning tree as we are joined by Dr. Neil Barnard. He was my guest this week on The Exam Room Live. And right now, we are going to be going into the kitchen for a prescription to fight cancer with his top cancer-fighting foods, nutrients, and tips to keep you healthy. Great to see you for such an important topic. Great to see you, Chuck. You hear numbers like half of all cases, if not more, are preventable. Uh, where in the world are we going wrong? Because we're talking about 2 million cases every single year. 
Well, and as a matter of fact, you know, if you take smoking out of the picture, you know, the, the, if you take smoking out of the picture, the percentage that's preventable is even higher um, because pe people will say, well, you know, smoking accounts for lung cancer, bladder cancer, a lot of things. And if people take care of that, then your big risk factor now is diet. When you get your diet together, cancer rates plummet. So what are the big foods that are really known to fight cancer in a major way? Is it those antioxidant high foods like blueberries that we've talked about previously? Or what else makes your list? I've got a list of five things that are, it's five sort of categories, really. Number one is the high fiber foods. And this will not surprise you, but fiber, of course, the obvious thing, fiber goes down your digestive tract, helps remove carcinogens. That's good. Reduces the risk of colorectal cancer and kind of everything along the way. But fiber does more than that. Fiber helps reduce certain hormone levels. It reduces estrogen levels. That's good. And in turn, that means less risk of breast cancer. So the high, high fiber foods, that's the top of my list. Number two, you, you don't want to just have fiber in there. You want antioxidants. Think color. So think about berries. Think about vegetables and colorful fruits. Think about sweet potatoes or carrots. That's the, the beta carotene. Antioxidants, whether it's the orange beta carotene, the red lycopene, the purple anthocyanins, these pigments aren't there just to make them look nice. These pigments are there to signal your eye that this is an antioxidant that you ought to be eating. The antioxidants knock out the free radicals that are going to damage your DNA. So eat for color. Number three, there are certain foods that detox uh, broccoli. The other cruciferous vegetables have something in them called sulforaphane and related compounds that go to the liver and they ramp up the liver's ability to get carcinogens out of your bloodstream. That's right. And it happens very, very rapidly. You eat uh, a good amount of cruciferous vegetables today, within 24 to 48 hours, you've got more uh, detoxing enzymes in your liver working for you. And they're there 24 seven. Okay, uh, number four clean, what I'm going to call clean energy. And that means you need calories, you need energy, you need something to keep you moving, something to keep your mind, uh, your brain functioning, but you don't want something filled with fat and cholesterol. So what gives you clean energy? Here, the whole grains are something that I would emphasize. Rice dishes, for example, but any of the grains, whether it's your morning oats or an ear of corn, but, but rice is one that I highlight because some of the longest lived uh, populations on the planet with the lowest historic cancer rates had rice-based diets. I'm talking about Japan, rural China, and others. Uh, number five, your healthy beverage. No, it is not a glass of milk. Milk is associated with prostate cancer, breast cancer, and ovarian cancer, according to the best done research that we have. Uh, but a glass of water is the beverage of choice. Uh, the government of Canada recently came out. They edged milk off their recommended list, put uh, a glass of water onto it. So those are my top five, high fiber foods, antioxidant rich foods, the detoxing foods, the clean energy foods, and finally, good healthy beverage. I find it interesting that high fiber foods land on this list as well for cancer. We were just talking in the previous episode about the importance of fiber also for heart health. Um, it just kind of goes to underscore why so many people do consider fiber to be one of, if not the single most important nutrient in the American, well, any diet, to be honest with you. It's not an accident. Keep in mind, human beings evolved uh, along with the other great apes 
we evolved in presumably in Eastern Africa. And like the other great apes, the chimpanzees and the orangutans and the bonobos and the gorillas, we're in a high fiber environment. So the body doesn't want to have one system for getting rid of excess estrogens and another one for dealing with your cardiovascular health. It will tend to use the same kinds of biological systems to solve all its problems. So if you've decided that you grew up in a spam factory, um, then your body is not going to be adjusted to the, the foods that are there. And what does that say then for the risk of cancer with these low carb diets that we also talked about on the previous episode, your keto, your paleo, things that are really uh, filled with a lot of meat, but really restricts the intake of fruit and vegetables because there's carbs in there. It's been a, a big worry that we've had. And, and frankly, it's a big worry that everybody has. Uh, doctors who treat people who have been on ketogenic diets really strongly encourage them to bring back the high fiber foods. And, and, and to their credit, in a way, some of the keto enthusiasts will say, okay, don't eat any fruit, don't eat starchy vegetables, but, but go to the store and get a fiber supplement or something like that. You know, that's obviously not the right advice, but you can see where they're coming from. They, 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 they recognize your body needs fiber. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why people on ketogenic diets often have heroic constipation. Um, they go, go into the bathroom and they just, because there's no fiber in the foods that they've been told to eat. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would equate heroic with constipation. I, <laughs> but, but hey man, it's, it, it sounds fun to say anyway. Um, let's get down to number four on there. You were talking about rice and whole grains. I'm curious, every time we bring rice up on the show, people are wondering, well, is white rice going to be included in that category or should it always, always, always be brown rice? Brown rice is better. Brown rice has the fiber cap on it. And uh, because um, the shelf life of brown rice is not quite as long, um, because the, the fiber cap has a little bit of natural oils in it too, just a tiny trace, but that means it's going to eventually go rancid. People discovered centuries ago that if you mill that off, the, the shelf life of white rice is much, much longer. And plus some people kind of like the, the fluffier taste. So brown rice, always better. That said, white rice is not poison. If you go into a restaurant and white rice is what they've got at your Chinese restaurant or your Indian restaurant or whatever, don't storm out. It's the white rice is better than what everybody else is eating. So that's perfectly fine. You're going to get extra fiber from the other foods that you pair it with. Absolutely. Well, uh, just by the by, when you go into, say, a Chinese restaurant, um, what is one of your favorite things to order? Are, are you just a steamed vegetables kind of guy with the white rice or what's what's your go to there? Well, there, there's so many things that you can have um, in, a, in a, a Chinese restaurant. But by the way, there are different kinds of Chinese foods, but in a Hunan or Sichuan type of place where it's not necessarily so much noodles, but it might be more vegetables and tofu dishes. Uh, do look at the various tofu dishes. Now, they may want to serve them to you with a, a kind of oily sauce. Say, sure, bring me the sauce, but put it on the side. Uh, don't mix it in with, the, with the, the tofu so you can pick how much you want. And frankly, if they've steamed it up and if it's a good fresh tofu, you're not going to add any of the, you may not want to add any of the sauce at all. Um, rice, I'll always have along with it. And I'm really big on the vegetables. Uh, and I do always ask for them to minimize the amount of oil that's, that's in there. And what you'll discover is that the combination of the grain, that's typically rice, and the vegetables, which could be broccoli or, um, or other vegetables, let me come back to that in a minute, or, and tofu is a really complete, very satisfying meal. Let me come back to this vegetable thing. 
if you go into a Chinese restaurant, if it's a really popular Chinese restaurant, if you look around and you see a lot of Chinese people eating there, say, could I please have the Chinese menu? And what you will discover is that they have a hidden a menu that they weren't necessarily giving to their non-Chinese people because it had foods on it that people who aren't Chinese don't tend to order, like morning glory um, or peapod tips. In other words, they've got a whole range of green vegetables that are very well known in China, but not very well known, say, here in North America. Order them. You will get hooked on them and it will change your life. What? I mean, I've heard of secret menus at Starbucks. I've never heard of secret menus at a Chinese restaurant before. This is a game changer. Yeah, it's not necessarily secret, but they're just not going to offer it to you and nobody thinks to ask. But you say, let me have the Chinese menu. And, and you, you'll see this at the, the ones that are, that are particularly popular with Asia, Asian populations. One more tip for you. If you are in a major city, Google Hot Pot. Hot Pot is not a ceramic pot. Hot Pot is a restaurant where you go in and they have on your table little um, pots of boiling broth. And uh, you put, they will bring to your table vegetables, uh, tofu and all kinds of things to put in there. You boil it yourself. And then there's a little sauce bar where you can put in a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of garlic, some sesame seeds or whatever. It is an absolute delight. Now, what I just described is the way to do it right. Hot pots live for meat eaters. Meat eaters come in there and they want to boil all the most exotic animal parts that they can. And so the, the restaurants charge a fair amount of money for it. But if you do it right, you go in and you say, I want the vegetables and, and it'll be exotic vegetables, uh, some kind of, sometimes kind of mundane vegetables like sweet potatoes, but they slice them very, very thin. They boil up beautifully. They, they, these exotic sauces make this, it's not a dinner, it is a party. And uh, hot pot restaurants, wherever you are, you're going to thank me for this. All right. Well, now hold on, hold the phone here, man. Like we, we are just like changing lives right now in the majorest of major ways here. So you go, let me, I just want to make sure that we're painting this experience accurately. So you go, you sit down at the table, there's a big pot of boiling broth or water or whatever the case may be. And then you cook your food yourself right there and eat it fresh. Fresh is fresh. That's right. That's right. And, and you could, you select which broth you want. I mean, they'll have all the ones that you don't want, like bone broth and so forth, but you select, they'll have many different vegetarian options. And that means vegan because dairy is not part of it. Um, and then they will have menus. Sometimes it's an electronic menu. Sometimes it's a paper menu and you will be able to choose different kinds of tofu. They'll have well, half a dozen of them, different kinds of mushrooms. They will have many different vegetables that you have never heard of and they bring them to you. It's all you can eat. It's as much as you want. Um, and you'll see somebody across from you who is shoveling down the meat products and so forth, like there's no tomorrow. That's not you. You're on this side of the aisle. You're having all the plant-based foods, but it will change your life. Bring, bring people with you. You're going to have a real blast. Now, some of these places, they charge like it's all you can eat. It can be a little bit pricey, but some of them realize that vegans are cheap dates. Um, while you're, you're having the vegetables and so forth. So they'll give you often uh, a very substantial discount if you go in there as a vegetarian. They may not do this the first time they've heard of it, but many of them have adopted that policy as more and more vegetarians have come in. All right, I've got a new goal in life, and that is to find a hot pot restaurant and enjoy. I think, 
I think New York is probably going to be a good opportunity to make that happen. So maybe, maybe while we're up there, Dr. Barnard, for the big show on July 12th that you and I are going to be doing the exam room live and in person, uh, we can find some time to find a hot pot restaurant and just go to town. This is amazing. Chuck, I will see you at the seasonings bar. We are going to have so much fun with this. Uh, it, it really is a cool way to do it. And, and Pretty much every major city has these has these now, and they are very cool. Oh man, like I just feel like my life is so much more complete now. I thought that I had a very full and rich and wonderful life, and then you throw this on me, and I'm like, man, <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Now this is as good as it gets. This is so good. Okay, hot pot, good to know. By the way, exam roomies, if you know of any good hot pot restaurants in New York, please send them my way. I am open to any and all suggestions at Chuck Carroll WLC, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. That's where you can find us. Send, send the suggestions because we just need to make this happen. We just need to make this happen. Uh, all right, Dr. Barnard, I'm feeling really good about things. I'm feeling so good about things now. I want to pivot. I want to open up the doctor's mailbag and see what else the exam roomies have on their mind today. You ready? You bet. All right, let's switch gears, take a question from Beth out of the gate. Uh, she is wondering what the best foods are for osteopenia. Okay, um, what we're talking about here is a step before osteoporosis. That's where the bones are really thin. Osteopenia means your bones are a little thinner than, than normal, uh, but not so much as with osteoporosis. What do you want? You know you want calcium, but you don't want dairy for calcium, but calcium is in Green leafy vegetables, especially, that's job one. Bring in lots of green leafy vegetables. Talk with your doctor. Your doctor may recommend calcium supplements, but for the most part, you could do it with food. Green leafy vegetables, beans, have a generous amount. Secondly, you need to absorb that calcium. That's what vitamin D does. Natural source is the sun. If you're not in the sun very much, or you're using a sunscreen that blocks those ultraviolet rays, then you're not making much vitamin D. In that case, you'll want a supplement. Uh, talk with your doctor, but most doctors nowadays would say, oh, up to about 2,000 international units of vitamin D, good, will help you uh, absorb uh, your calcium. And it also, vitamin D seems to have an anti-cancer effect as well. So calcium, vitamin D, number three, give your bones a reason to live. That means exercise. The more you physically exercise, you're moving your muscles. But let's say you're, you're uh, going down the street with a good, good uh, brisk walk. Your spine is moving up and down and up and down and up and down. That little bit of stress on your spine causes the, the muscles to sort of pull and push and pull and push and pull and push. That strengthens the uh, bones that are nearby. Same with your hips, same with your wrists. Uh, the more you exercise, the better off you're going to be. And about how much exercise would you recommend on a weekly basis? We see estimates that kind of run the gamut here. What do you think the sweet spot is? Yeah, uh, well, the more the better is kind of a simple <laughs> way of putting it. Uh, when Alzheimer's researchers have started out, it was really small. It was about a 40 minute brisk walk three times a week. And I still, and, and that is good for your brain. Don't, don't get me wrong. When people do that amount, it's huge. But now if you were at the Barnard medical center, Dr. Jim Loomis would say an hour, most days. So he's not talking about three times a week. He says, let's get out there and let's sweat every day. Well, my man's at like, Ironman triathlete, though. I uh, mean, yeah, exactly. he loves to do that stuff. He... <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so anyway, so somewhere between those two. But 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 if you're a real couch potato, as frankly, most people are, uh, starting three days a week is a good way to start. In fact, start small. Start 10 minutes. 10-minute 10 brisk walk. Next week, do it 15. 
Next week, do it 20, 20 minutes, three times a day. Next week, 25. Work your way up. If it's 40 minutes, brisk walk three times a week, you are way more than your average person. But if you get up to Jim Loomis level and you're doing an hour of getting your heart pumping uh, every day or most every day, well, good on you. That's extra credit. And let me ask you this. From time to time, we do get questions from exam roomies who say, well, look, you know, I, I went on this really clean, low fat vegan diet and I feel like now I maybe have lost a little bit too much weight, a little bit too much muscle. How difficult is it to build those muscles back up if you kind of have bottomed out where you need to be with your weight? You mean you've lost a whole lot of weight and, and you're feeling too thin. And you want to bring your muscles back. There you uh, go. Yeah, you just do do it in your own in your own time. You you do not have to be doing what a lot of athletes do, stuffing a lot of egg white and pork chops down their esophagus. That that is not going to speed it up. Um, just make sure you're eating a good overall healthy diet. It has more than enough protein for muscular repair. And then you many people will say, combine the aerobic exercise with the power exercises um, a little bit. The, the the ones that really will stress your muscles in a bigger way, and and that'll bring the muscles back. All right. A couple of questions now about inflammation. We know that inflammation is a precursor for heart disease, which we talked about on the previous episode, but can it also be a precursor for cancer? Sure. Um, inflammatory processes are, yes, when an organ is constantly inflamed, that is the invitation for a cell to have its DNA damaged in such a way that it becomes a cancer cell. Inflammation is often the precursor for cancer. What are the things that promote it? Um, animal products in general, especially dairy, uh, dairy is an inflammatory trigger for many, many people in many, many conditions. What are the things that fight it? Your vegetables and fruits are rich in antioxidants that help you knock out the free radicals that are kind of the product of inflammation. So again, more plants getting away from the animal products. All right. And uh, I guess that kind of combines Charles's question we got there. What are the best ones to get rid of inflammation overall? Sarah's asking more specifically, though, about the gut. And I'm sure that this is something that will come up with Dr. Will Bolsowitz in the future as well. She's wondering, what are the best foods to soothe an inflamed gut? Ah, great question. Um, first of all, you do want to get rid of the things that we did talk about. Dairy products for many people are an invitation to gut disaster. If you took an antibiotic for any reason, urinary tract infection or whatever, it has, I mean, you had to take the antibiotic. I'm not saying you shouldn't take it, but when you did, it knocked out a lot of your gut microbiome. And now your gut is a different animal than it was before. You weren't gluten intolerant before, now you may be. As your gut gets back to normal, you might find that, um, that you, can't, you can't digest things as well as you could before. Along the way, if you have a gut that's been inflamed because of whatever reason or you're using an antibiotic, you may discover that you have to also leave out gluten. For everybody else, don't worry about it. Gluten is not an issue for you. If you don't have celiac disease, um, you, can, you can have gluten-containing foods, wheat, barley, rye. But see how they affect you. Everyone's a little bit different. Um, and, and once again, you want to have the foods that your body was designed for, the vegetables and the fruits. They're rich in antioxidants. That's good for your gut. But as everybody with everybody, every digestive disorder ever realized that rice and sort of quick cooking uh, grains along that, uh, along those lines are sort of the best friend for your digestive tract. So a little bit of rice is something that your, your digestive tract is not going to react badly to. 
And along those lines as well, Kylie is wondering whether we really can throw a blanket over all Whole Foods here and say that every last one of the Whole Foods are in fact good for gut health. What would you say to Kylie's question? I would say it depends on what a whole food is. I mean, you'll hear people say that, well, whole foods includes vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. It certainly does. But some people think that dairy products are a whole food or, or meat is a whole food or something like that. But they mean because it didn't go through the grinder yet. Those are not whole foods. To get meat, what you did is you fed plants into a machine that we call a cow and out came uh, the meat that was that was taken. So it's, it's not anything like a whole food. So, but, but whole foods, Vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, sure, they're fine. We kind of run on gut health questions here. Arioji, how can I help IBS if I'm already eating a clean diet? So if it's persistent, if it's kind of chronic and it just seems like, man, you just can't get a break with it, you're already eating clean, what would you suggest next? Okay, um, first of all, do see your gastroenterologist. If you're having recurrent symptoms, uh, it's good to try uh, diet changes even eliminating some of the foods that are pretty healthy. If beans are a little more than you can handle, reduce your portions or you can even set them aside for a little while. If you're new to beans and it takes some time before your digestive tract can, can really handle them. Most people, as I mentioned, are not gluten intolerant, but some people are. About 1% of the population or a little bit less has celiac disease and wheat, uh, barley, rye are gonna tear your digestive tract up. You can't have them at all. And maybe one in 10 people uh, just feels better when they go gluten-free. If that's not you, go ahead and, and just have, have gluten-containing foods as much as you want. But, but if you are in that one in 10 where you notice a, a real difference in your digestive tract, set it aside. Um, one other thing, there are some people who have a condition called small intestinal bowel, uh, or I'm sorry, bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, you don't know you've got it. You just know you've got kind of a gurgly stomach. You're in the bathroom a lot. Uh, you can't figure out why your digestive tract is not your friend. And your doctor can test for it. It's easy to test. And the treatment for it is an antibiotic. And your doctor can order that for you. And you take this short course of antibiotics and it knocks out the bad bugs. And for many, many, many people, they finally feel better if they do that. So start with the diet changes. If you need the medication, you can do it. All right, let's take a question here from Elena, who wants to do a follow-up for something we were talking about on the previous episode when we were talking about curbing cravings. And she's like, well, now listen, I get cravings all the time, but in particular, guys, I hear what you're saying, but my after-dinner cravings are atrocious. And she wants to know, Dr. Barnard, what foods might she want to turn to to reduce those after-dinner cravings? Okay, well, the first question is, what are you craving? I will bet a dollar that what you crave is sugar or something sugary or, 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 or it may be chocolate, one or the other. For some people, the reason is they're trying to complement or their brain wants to complement the spiciness or the savoriness of what they had. The answer to it isn't to necessarily try to knock it out. The answer may be to gratify it. Um, let's say, instead of a big hunk of greasy chocolate cake, um, what we were to have maybe a little bowl with some blueberries, some mangoes, some bananas. So you give yourself the sweet taste in a way that has no regrets that uh, go along with it. Okay. You might also, a couple other things you might consider doing. If you have a high fiber meal, if the meal has lots of fiber in it, vegetables and beans and that kind of thing. And if it's high in complex carbohydrates and low in fat, what you'll discover is that your appetite is tamed 
naturally. Um, extra credit. If you were to inject Wagovi or Ozempic, these drugs uh, stimulate a receptor in the brain that's, co that's called the receptor for GLP-1. GLP-1 is a natural compound in your body, made in your intestine, and after you eat a food, the GLP-1 goes to the brain and turns off your appetite. So Wagovi hits that same receptor. You can do this yourself without Wagovi by having foods that are low in fat, high in fiber, and high in complex carbohydrate. So when you're eating your meal, if you had a nice pasta dish, a rice dish, some potatoes, foods that are rich in complex carbohydrate, low in fat and high in fiber, that turns on the GLP-1, goes to the brain, turns down the appetite, the cravings won't be gone. The, the cravings will not be gone, but they're going to not call your name very loud. So um, use that trick. You don't have to inject anything other than healthy food. All right. You open up the doctor's mailbag. You get a little bit of everything, including this question now from Lisa, who wants to know whether there are any foods that can help shrink fibroids. I wish I could say there are because, because in theory there should be. Uh, a fibroid is, is an overgrowing muscle tissue. In your uterus, the, in the, the lining of the uterus called the endometrial layer, right underneath that is a muscular layer, kind of like steel belts in a tire. It gives it strength and resilience. Um, and a little knot of muscles can grow, and that's a fibroid. And sometimes it can grow like a golf ball or a baseball. And for many women, well, many women have them, and they're totally asymptomatic. Many women have them, and they do cause symptoms of a variety of kinds. Estrogen, female sex hormones, drive that. So what can I do to reduce estrogens? High fiber foods, once again, you've heard me say the word fiber about 16 times in the show. High fiber foods reduce estrogen. Fat increases estrogen, so you want to get away from fatty foods. So when women go on high fiber, low fat diets, ideally a vegan, low fat diet, you could see the effects of estrogen going right down. Menstrual pain diminishes. Many women with endometriosis, they feel a whole lot better. But the fibroids, they theoretically should get better, and I think they will, but it just takes a really long time, I'm sorry to say. And women discover this after, after menopause. Your estrogen level goes way, way down. But the fibroids can take a long time to resolve. So if they're really impairing your life, this may not spare you from having to have treatments at your GYN's office. But, but doing this kind of diet is, gets your body going in, at least in the right direction. Speaking of menopause, we'll jump down to Fried Green's question, and they want to know, when going through menopause, what are the first steps you would recommend for switching to a plant-based diet? Okay, well, it, it's a great question. As, as you probably know, we've done a couple of studies here in helping women who are having menopausal symptoms, like hot flashes, and they're waking up in the middle of the night, really feeling miserable. The diet that we found very effective has three steps. No animal products keeping oils and oily foods to a minimum, and having a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. Now, I wrote about this in my book, Your Body in Balance, but we've tested this in 84 women in a randomized trial, and we found an 88% reduction in hot flashes. So works great. Uh, it also reduces other physical symptoms like headaches, psychosocial symptoms like mood, and even sexual symptoms seem to improve with this approach. So how do you begin? Two steps, take one week, and during this week, just explore the vegan foods that you would like, assuming you're not already following a plant-based diet. Take a week to kind of get to know some of them that, that you would like, and you'll get lots of 
ideas from this program and from my books and, and others, you'll, you'll see. Step two is once you've got your list of foods that are plant-based that you like, now step two is take three weeks and put the diet to the test. No animal products at all. We're going to follow it completely, but it's easy to do because you already picked out your foods. And after three weeks, you're going to feel dramatically better. You're going to be losing weight. Your taste will have changed. Your hot flashes may have gone. For some people, it takes a little bit longer, a couple more weeks. Just stick with it and you're going to see a, a dramatic improvement. The last thing, Chuck, that I do, I do want to say, menopause is not just all about hot flashes. Menopause is the time when many women reflect on what's ahead. Okay, am I at higher risk now for uh, breast cancer? or heart disease, or is Alzheimer's disease kind of looming out on the horizon? Now is the time to rethink your relationship with food overall. Now is the time to follow a plant-based diet, rich in soybeans, because soybeans reduce the risk of breast cancer. You want to have plant-based a plant-based diet so that your heart is protected. So uh, a plant-based diet is good for the menopausal transition, but also great for everything that's beyond it. All right, let's turn back the fertility clock a little bit and take a question from Megan, who's wondering, what are the best plant-based foods to eat while a woman is nursing? Ah, okay. Well, that's a terrific thing to, to ask because you're nursing, you're eating for two, but and and the, the, the baby that you're nursing is effectively eating what you eat. And many women have discovered this, actually. Uh, there was a report back, oh, this goes back 25 years, where researchers discovered that uh, dairy products that a woman consumes, the dairy products will get into her stomach. The proteins uh, will then get into her milk, her breast milk. The baby's stomach will be hit with these proteins and it causes colic in the baby. Avoid dairy products. You don't need them at all. For an occasional child, you'll see um, other foods can cause it, chocolate or caffeine or even some cruciferous vegetables, but those are much less common to be a problem. Um, what you eat, your baby eats, so get rid of some of those things. Um, finally, don't forget that you need good, healthy foods and your baby needs them too. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and your vitamin B12. Those are rules. Those are not negotiable. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans. Don't forget your vitamin B12. We've got two questions left here in the mailbag today. We'll start with CMDCAD, CMDCAD23 sent this on Instagram. What diet and lifestyle changes, Dr. Barnard, can help with hypothyroidism? Ah, great question. Um, we have, re the, the thyroid can misbehave in two directions. There's hypo, which is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, um, is, the, is the common form. And then there's hyper, where you've got too much thyroid hormone being produced, that's Graves' disease. Um, and diet plays a role in both. If you're talking about hypo, where your body is not making enough um, thyroid hormone, uh, the Hashimoto's thyroiditis is an autoimmune condition. And we don't yet know for sure that a diet change will help, but we got a tantalizing hint from the Adventist Health Study 2. It showed that people following diets rich in dairy products were at highest risk of having hypothyroidism. I'm talking about people who are vegetarian, but they're, they're not eating meat, but they're making up for it with milk and cheese and that kind of thing. The ovo-lacto-vegetarians did the worst. The people who did the best, the people who consume no dairy at all, vegans. So why? What we think is happening is that dairy protein triggers the production of antibodies that knock out the or reduce the thyroid's ability to produce thyroid hormone. 
So that's number one. The second thing is maybe the most obvious. You need iodine. Your thyroid cannot make thyroid hormone without iodine. Where do you find it? Well, iodine is in iodized salt, obviously. Um, if you're not having that, sea vegetables, greatest source, bar none. Uh, so make sure you've got a source of iodine in your diet. Now, if it's hyper, once again, we don't really know for sure, but the same Adventist Health Study 2 showed, once again, the vegans have the lowest risk. The omnivores, in this case, have the highest risk, much higher risk of hyperthyroidism. And what we think is going on is that the animal proteins trigger the release of antibodies that, in this case, stop the thyroid's off switch from functioning normally. So it keeps producing thyroid hormone. It doesn't turn it down. So if you might be thinking, am I implying that if a person who's got hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, should they try a healthy, low-fat vegan diet? The answer is yes, because a lot of people have done so, and they have found that they do really dramatically better. We've seen both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism remit in some cases. Two caveats. We, there has never been a randomized trial done of any of this. Do not fire, fire your doctor. Continue to work with your endocrinologist and take your doctor's advice. But do try the diet and just see if it will work for you. There's never a, a contraindication to it. So uh, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, take your vitamin B12. Give it a shot. If your thyroid uh, functions better, great. Uh, if it doesn't, your doctor can help you. And, and your doctor will advise you on iodine as well. And in your latest book, Your Body and Balance, that's something both with hyper and hypothyroidism, that's something that you covered pretty extensively in there. Yes. And in fact, we talked about individuals who have done exactly this, which was absolutely mind-blowing because we used to think diet had nothing whatsoever to do with it apart from being an iodine source in certain foods. But we have now learned uh, that diet makes a huge difference in the autoimmune forms of this disease, which are by far the most common. So I think that's a randomized trial that's just waiting to happen. Absolutely. And look, uh, we've got a link for you to pick up your copy of Your Body and Balance right now in the show description or in the episode notes. Dr. Barnard, time for one more question. And this is a big one. A lot of people talk about fasting and its benefits. And Mike is wondering about the benefits of fasting when it comes to diabetes in particular. Has it been shown to be helpful in that arena? I, th I think there are some things in this direction that can be helped. Now, fasting has all different variations on it. Um, th there are some people who will fast for long periods of time. It can be helpful, but it's dangerous. If you're fasting for more than a couple of days, you need to be under medical supervision if you're going to do this. Um, there are places like True North that will offer that kind of supervision and can do it for you safely, but do not do this on your own. Now, there are people who will do intermittent fasting. They fast for a couple of days and then they'll eat for five days, fast for a couple of days, eat for five days. Fair enough. But what you discover is after about two weeks of this, you're anticipating the fast day by eating more on Thursday before your Friday fast. And then Saturday you fast and Sunday you kind of pig out to make up for it. And then you're probably doing your body more harm than good. But there's, there's one other variation of this. And that's, uh, I guess what I would call meal timing. Uh, and Dr. Kaliova has talked about this here, where instead of three meals or grazing, people will have really big meals, one for breakfast, one for lunch, and then they don't eat the rest of the day. Then they wake up in the morning, they're hungry, they eat another big breakfast, another big lunch, and they don't eat the rest of the day. And what many people find is their blood sugars come under this really good control and they feel better and they just like that way of going. Now, I have to say, I have not done research studies using this approach, but I respect people who have. 
In our hands, we use simply a diet that is three things. No animal products, oils really low and oily foods really low, and consume healthy foods of everything that's left. So brown rice instead of white rice, for example. When people do those three things, vegan, low oil, healthy foods, you find that people's blood sugar control goes, just improves dramatically. The weight comes off, their diabetes comes under better control than they've ever imagined. So if you haven't gone there, start there. That's a great place to begin. And hey, maybe fasting is something you and I will cover on July 12th when we're up in New York City for the big exam room live and in person. Rip Esselstyn is going to be joining us that night, as will Dr. Robert Osfeld. So cannot wait. Hopefully you exam roomies you want to turn out in droves just like you did in L.A. We're really going to make this the most heart healthy night of your life on July 12th. Absolutely just can't wait for this, Dr. Barnard. Uh, to borrow a line from the skaters, I am stoked for this one. <laughs> it's going to be fun. July 12th. It is highlighted and circled on my calendar. July 12th, New York City. Uh, I'll be there. You're going to be there. It's going to be really fun. You know, I have to say, Chuck, it's, it's, I love doing the show. However, there is something about doing the show live. When everybody is there, we're talking to it's. We go in much more depth. We really knock it out of the park. So we had a great time doing this in Los Angeles not too long ago. New York is going to be even better. Oh, yeah. You guys think the chat room is fun. Imagine being in an actual room with hundreds of other exam roomies and just feeding off of that healthy energy. It's a, it's just a wild good time. So come on out. There's a link to pick up your tickets in the show description or in the episode notes. And Dr. Barnard, we can't close today also without another huge thank you to Allison Mahoney and the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for their continued support of organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. That's a lot that they do, and it's just amazing all the work that they get done, and you can see everything that they're up to on their website right now, the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. You can see it right now down below on the screen. Click that link, get to their website, sign up for the newsletter, and check out everything that they're doing because I got to tell you, Dr. Barnard, I thought we were busy at the Physicians Committee. What they're able to do over with the Ryder Fund is also also just mind-blowing warp speed doing a lot of good in the world. Yeah, I, I tell you, I check every update that, that, that uh, the Writer Fund is doing. It's wonderful to see. You know, Greg was such a marvelous person with such a warm heart. And Allison has carried his spirit forward with just, you know, world-changing work. Um, and it's wonderful to see. So thank you for supporting what we're doing here at the exam room. Here, 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 here. All right, my friend, that is all the time that we have today. Thank you again for joining us and raising our health IQs. Thank you, Chuck. The learning tree was fruitful today, my friends. No doubt about it. Such great information there to keep us happy and healthy and hopefully cancer free. I want to take a quick second to say hi to Rodkey who is listening on Apple Podcasts because Rodkey is our newest five-star health success. In a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Rodkey writes, I am so grateful for this podcast that has helped me in a lot of ways and actually inspired me to go vegan. 
I have been vegetarian for the past 14 years and now I'm two months in as a full-blown vegan. This has been a light to me. The show is showing me the way and I've even bought cookbooks filled with vegan recipes. So thank you all for giving me this community and most importantly, for giving me a healthy, cleaner lifestyle. Oh, Rocky, that is so awesome to hear. I am so happy for you. So congratulations for two big months as a full-blown vegan, and here's to a lifetime still to come. And you can leave your own five-star story and health success right now on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever it is that you get your shows. Just follow the exam room by the Physicians Committee, leave a five-star rating, and then in the review... Tell us how you've improved your health with a vegan diet and what you've learned by listening to the exam room. And we might just feature your story right here on the show, like Rodkey's. Now, a little bit more on that study we were talking about at the top of the show, the one that showed that half of all cancer cases are preventable. So the researchers here, to reach this conclusion, what they did was they actually pulled data from two large lifestyle studies that were going on at the time, and they merged this data together. And so what investigators were looking for with all of these figures was an association between a healthy lifestyle and the rate of cancer. And so in this case, this is how they defined a healthy lifestyle not smoking, not drinking too much. So that would be a one drink a day limit for women and two drinks a day for men. They also said that a healthy lifestyle meant keeping a healthy weight. So that would be a body mass index between 18.5 and 27.5 and also exercising specifically getting at least 75 minutes of vigorous exercise per week or 150 minutes of moderately intense exercise. So then when you factor all of that stuff in, what they found was the forms of cancer that were perhaps most impacted by the healthy lifestyle were lung, colon, pancreatic, and kidney. So really some interesting results. I've gone ahead and posted a link to that study in the episode notes. Now, other studies throughout the course of time, years and years and years, I mean decades worth of data. Studies specifically on diet here show that diet alone can have a massive impact on cancer risk as well. So here are some tips and other things to consider for adopting a plant-based diet in the fight against cancer, as we have learned today. So some more fruit from under the learning tree here. Kind of what Dr. Barnard was talking about, fiber. You definitely want fiber in there because the fiber found in plants is like a scrubbing mechanism. It gets in your body and it just cleans things up. It's like the merry maids of health. It's a glorious thing. So that includes helping to sweep away the excess cancer-causing hormones that are found in the intestines and it sweeps them right out your back door. Literally and figuratively. And then high-fat foods like fatty cuts of meat and 
oil and cheese. You're going to want to get those out of your diet as well because high fat diets have been shown to increase estrogen levels and that absolutely has been linked to cancer cell growth. And oh, by the way, vegan diets also limit saturated fat and saturated fat has been linked to shorter survival among people who have already been diagnosed with cancer. And the idea, a lot of people still have the idea that a grilled piece of meat is healthier than fried. Well, additional research shows that grilling meat, including the so-called healthy meats like chicken or fish, well, that actually produces a carcinogenic effect, right? So you're getting carcinogens with this healthy grilled healthy meat. And then red and processed meats like bacon and hot dogs, well, those are already classified as being carcinogenic. They straight up contain harmful substances that can lead to cancer, specifically in a lot of cases, colorectal cancer. And then dairy products also touted as being healthy. Well, they've been linked to prostate, breast and ovarian cancers. So lots of risk there. Bottom line here is just skip the dairy and don't pile on the meat, but definitely pile on a bunch of colors on your plate, pile them high because the more naturally colorful your diet is, the more likely it is to have an abundance of cancer fighting compounds. The pigments that give fruits and vegetables their vibrant, bright colors, like lycopene in tomatoes. That lycopene helps you fight cancer. And speaking of colors, orange is your new friend. We actually did a show one time, an episode titled Orange is the New Pink. And here's why. Orange foods are packed with beta carotene. We're talking about foods like carrots and winter squash. They are beta carotene powerhouses definitely going to want to get those on your plate. So just some things to think about. And there is a ton of other cancer fighting information just waiting for you on our website. We've put it at your fingertips, pcrm.org cancer. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and helping to raise our cancer-fighting health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.